0: So, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run. With perseverance, the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down. At the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart.
1: Thanks for reading Jack. Good morning everyone. Um, Please keep your Bibles open in front of you um, at that passage and let me pray again as we come to God's word. Let's pray together. The book of Hebrews earlier on says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Lord God, help us as we hear your voice now to not harden our hearts, but to have ears to hear you speak. Please would your word help us to persevere to the end, trusting solely in the Lord Jesus Christ as we wait for his return, and we pray in his name. Amen. Well, as we heard those words um, read by Jack, these few verses in Hebrews, I wonder if you noticed the vivid metaphor that the author uses to describe the Christian life. Did you notice it as we read through? The Christian life is a race, the life of trusting in Jesus Christ and following him and relying on him for salvation and life, life, that life is like a race, a race to be run day after day, week after week, year after year, for as many years as the Lord gives us. I read this week that the average life expectancy of a male person in the UK is 79 years old, I've been a Christian since I was 16 years old. I'm now 31, which means I'm 15 years into my Christian race. If I manage to reach my life expectancy, God knows if I will or not, um, then that means I'm a quarter of the way through this race that lies ahead as I follow Jesus. 25% there with three quarters of the race still to run. Now, for some here this morning, you are perhaps further on in your own race of following Jesus. For others, you've only just set out from the starting line. And for some of you, you're considering whether to begin this race at all. Whichever stage of the race we're in, however we're feeling in the race at the moment, we need to know how we can run this race until the end. What will it look like to persevere to the end Now, this was the main issue that was facing the original hearers of Hebrews. Earlier on in their Christian lives, they'd suffered opposition for their faith, and yet they'd persevered joyfully in the midst of that opposition. Just turn back with me to chapter 10 and verse 32, and and we read here about some of the things that the Hebrew readers went through in the early days as they followed Jesus. Chapter 10, verse 32, let me read those for us. He writes, remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, at other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated, you sympathised with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Do you see that the Hebrews have been through their own contest of suffering? They've faced opposition for following Jesus. They have wounds from the battle and bruises from the race. And yet they embraced the shame and suffering that came with following Jesus. But the challenge for the hearers now, as it is for us, is perseverance. To continue how we started as the author says in verse 35 of chapter 10. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. The writer of Hebrews urges his hearers not to throw away their confidence. They need to persevere in the race. It seems as though fatigue and discouragement is setting in for those who are listening To Hebrews, distraction might have crept in, and so they need to keep going in the midst of trials when life is both joyful and hard. They have not yet received their promised eternal inheritance, and so there's need for perseverance. But the question is, what will it look like to endure to the end? What will it mean to run this race well? How can we run this race well? That's what these verses are all about. We might be at the start of the race, we might be in the middle, we might be coming towards the end, we might be considering whether to start. For all of us, there are two exhortations to consider in chapter 12. The first is in verse 1 of chapter 12, let us run the race, let us run the race. Let me read verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders And the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Now I want to draw out a few uh, things that we learn here about the, the race that is to be run in the Christian life. A few lessons to learn from this verse. Firstly, we need to see that this is not a solo race, but a team race. Not a solo race, but a team race. Do you notice that the writer doesn't say Hey, you hear us, you need to run. Nor does he address them as individuals, but he says, "Let us run this race with perseverance. Let us run the race together." He is part of this group that he is urging to run. We've seen this throughout Hebrews, if you've been here for these past few weeks, that the writer includes himself in his exhortations in the letter. He doesn't just say, "Do this or do that." He, said, Let, he says, "Let us do this. Let us do that," as we saw last week. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast for confession. Let us consider how to spur others on. And again in chapter 12, we are being urged together to run this race together. I was in the gym this week for the first time in a very long time. Normally I like to be outside, um, but sometimes the weather dictates our decisions in Lancaster, doesn't it? Quite often it does. Um, So there I was, and I did pick up quite quickly that the gym is not the most friendly of places. Most people just want to be there doing their thing, and there are several people there running on the treadmills with headphones in, eyes fixed ahead, running their solo race. But the Christian life is less like a run on the treadmill and more like a team run in the park. We're not going to leave a member behind on the side of the verge. We're in this together. Let us together run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. But the author doesn't just include his present hearers in this exhortation. He also talks about a group of witnesses who are long dead, but are in some sense with believers in the race. Verse 1 again, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run. Now, these witnesses that the writer refers to are the witnesses that we read about in chapter 11. In that chapter, he brings forth Person after person from the Old Testament who has run this race already, who has lived this life of faith and has completed the race. People who exemplify the life of faith. If you have time to read uh, read it later, you'll read about Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Moses' parents, the Israelites, Rahab. And he doesn't even have time to mention other people like Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets. Countless men and women across salvation history who had faith in God's promises and therefore persevered to the end. At the end of chapter 11 from verse 35 we read that many of these believers were tortured, beaten, persecuted, mistreated. And yet they carried on in faithful trust in the promises of God even in the face of death. And the writer says that we as believers are now surrounded by these witnesses, this cloud of witnesses. They model to us the life of faith. They show us what it means to faithfully depend upon God in the midst of a whole variety of opposition and suffering. They don't just come before us, but... They surround us. They also surround us now, spurring us on as we look to their example. They teach us that the the race of faith is well worth running whatever suffering comes our way. Now, when I started um, reading these verses, I think I assumed that this cloud of witnesses is a bit like the sort of supporters, the crowd in a stadium. Just imagine the Olympic stadium and the 100-meter race being run, all the crowds of people around cheering the runners on That's what I thought of when I thought about these witnesses. Now, there is a sense in which these witnesses help us in the race, shouting from the heavenly stands, we might say. But it's not just that they're looking at us, is it, cheering us on. We're also looking at them. We're learning from their patience and their perseverance. We are running the race that they themselves have run before us. And so, with a cloud of witnesses filling our minds, surrounding us on every side, teaching us about the life of faith, let us therefore run this race together. Running in the same way that they ran, with confident trust in the promises of God. This is not a solo race on the treadmill. This is a team race that countless men and women have run before us. The writer also tells us that this is not a sprint race, but a marathon. Not a sprint race, but a marathon. A marathon. He says, let us run the race, not quickly, but with perseverance. This idea of perseverance or endurance is throughout these chapters of Hebrews. We saw it in chapter 10. You need to persevere, he wrote. We see it again in verses 2 and 3 of, of chapter 12. This is not a sprint where we race out of the blocks and we're done in a matter of seconds. This is more like an iron man the Lord may give us 50, 60, 70, 80 years to run this race race of faith in Jesus. And so we need to be ready for a marathon if the Lord prolongs our lives. I've known people over the years who seem to have sprinted out of the blocks. You might know people like that as well, who seemed from all appearances to be running this race with zeal and with joy, and who after several months or several years veered from the track and are now nowhere with Jesus. This race is won for Paula Radcliffe more than for Usain Bolt, if I can put it like that. It's a marathon, not a sprint. But before we make the mistake of therefore thinking that the Christian life is a life of drudgery and a grind, I want to remind us that there is so often joy in the journey. I remember interviewing an older Christian couple several years ago, and I asked them about the race they'd run so far. What has it been like following Jesus over your many years, many decades of serving him? And the response I got from them was a a challenge, because I think I was expecting something like, well, it's been hard and there have been knocks along the way, it's been difficult following Jesus, there's been a cross to carry. Instead, the answer I got was much more encouraging and motivating It's been a real joy, they said. It's been wonderful following Jesus these years. They've run the race for many years. They've served Jesus through hard times as well as good. And they were full of thankfulness for God's grace. We need to know that the race laid out for us is a team race, not a solo race. We need to remember that it's a marathon race of perseverance. It's not a sprint. And thirdly, it's a race where every sin and weight needs to be thrown off. Come back with me to verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Now, we need to have in mind here a professional runner, a runner committed to the race ahead. This runner is going to lay aside every weight that might hinder their progress, aren't they? The heavy watch is taken off. The jeans are laid aside. The fleece-lined jacket is left in the wardrobe. They're streamlined, ready, prepared. Running the race takes priority. Finishing the race is the goal. And so everything that might slow them down is thrown off. The people, on the other hand, who run the London Marathon in crocodile suits or dressed as Big Ben are not going to be first past the line. It's the single-minded, focused, committed runners who make it to the end. Now, I'm sure you've often marveled with me at the level of commitment that professional athletes show. Long periods away from family, strict diets, physical pain, all for the glory of an earthly race. How much more motivation do we as Christian believers have to keep running the race that is laid out for us, the race that is run for the glory of God with a certain hope of everlasting joy with Jesus? How much more should the attitude of throwing off everything that hinders be one that characterises a Christian? How much more seriously should we be taking this race that influences not just our present lives, but also our eternities? The author says that we need to throw off everything that hinders. Now, I don't think the writer is thinking here particularly about sin in this phrase because he mentions it, doesn't he, again in verse 1. He talks about everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. So in the everything that hinders, I think he's talking about anything that might uh, stop us or slow us down from trusting in the Lord Jesus. These hindrances may be different, will be different for each of us. One person's hobby might be another person's obsession. One pursuit that is God-glorifying for one person might be an unhelpful distraction for another. In my ministry with university students, I've seen how it's often good things that can take people away from hearing the gospel and following Jesus. It's the academic work that becomes a hindrance because it becomes all-consuming, or it's the sports club that brings enjoyment but also takes them away from church on Sundays. We need to be prepared to throw off any weight that might hinder us in the race of our lives. But it's not just hindrances that he mentions that can slow us down and make the race hard. The the writer also mentions sin that so easily entangles. I think there's a lot to ponder in that description of sin. Sin that so easily entangles. Sin is deep and deceptive and destructive. Sin is the deep-rooted idea that we can live our lives without God and that true life is to be found outside of him. It's an attitude of rejection and rebellion against God that is then manifested in hundreds of daily thoughts and decisions. Now Christian believers who have started this race are those who have repented of sin and have been given forgiveness purely through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Our old natures have been crucified with Jesus at the cross and we put on new natures by God's Spirit But the entangling reality of sin still lingers on in the hearts of a Christian. Sin has some power still in our lives to cause destruction. We are still living in this old, wretched body of sin. And so this sin can grow up like weeds in a garden, getting a hold of our hearts so that our thoughts and our words and our deeds are not glorifying to God. And in the words of verse 1, this can easily happen, sin can so easily entangle us. Which is one of the reasons why we need to be running the race, not just on the treadmill with our headphones in, but in the midst of a church family. In Hebrews chapter 3, we've, we, we read another exhortation there to this church of the Hebrews. And the writer there said, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And then he says, But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. One of the antidotes to the entangling reality of sin is to live in the midst of a community that will lovingly call out your sin and who will help you day by day in the race not to be hardened by sin's deceitfulness like we were thinking about as we thought about the startup course coming up, it's worth asking ourselves, are we willing to be on the receiving end of that kind of loving rebuke? And are we willing to be those who give it to others so that people might persevere to the end? Now hopefully this image of verse 1 is firmly in our minds. We are urged to have a single-minded attitude to the Christian life like a runner in a race, with minds set on the course ahead, eager to throw off anything that might hinder us in the race, all the while surrounded by the community of the faithful witnesses of the Old Testament and the community of believers here today. But as we run this race, it's not enough simply to look to the Old Testament examples of faith. Neither should we only be looking inwards and trying to throw off our sin and only thinking about our sin. Or rather, we are to do what verses 2 and 3 urge us to do. This is the crucial way to run this race. The only way to make it to the end is to do what the writer says next. Let us look to Jesus. Let us look to Jesus. Just look at verses 2 and 3, and you'll see that the main exhortation there is clear. Verse 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Verse 3, consider him. Consider Jesus. Now those words in verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, are about an unwavering focus on Jesus Christ, to find in him our hope and salvation and life, and to keep finding in him our hope and salvation and life. We begin the Christian race by looking to Jesus for salvation, we continue the race by looking to Jesus, and we will one day end the race when we finally see Jesus face to face. Remember that the hearers of this letter were weary, suffering believers who were in danger of pulling out of the race. They were growing weary and losing heart. But the solution the author gives is not a new strategy or a new plan or a new focus or a new leadership. He brings them right back to where they began. Keep looking to Jesus. Keep doing what you began doing. He is still all you need. Let's read verse 2. He says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The great cloud of witnesses gave us many examples of the life of faith, but the supreme example is here in verse 2. It's Jesus Christ himself. As we read in chapter 11, verse 39, the Old Testament witnesses were commended by God for trusting in him. Chapter 11, verse 39. And yet none of them received what had been promised. None of them saw the fulfilment of God's salvation plan. None of them saw the climax of God's purposes and the ushering in of God's eternal kingdom. They had to live by faith, trusting that these promises would be fulfilled after they died. But now in Jesus, the fulfilment of all of God's promises have come. It's the theme we've seen throughout Hebrews, isn't it? The Old Testament was but a shadow of the good things that were coming. Now the fulfilment has arrived. We see in verse 2 that when Jesus came to earth from heaven, he too had a race to run. He had the finish line in mind. Do you see how it's described in verse 2? The joy that was set before him. The joy of taking his seat at the right hand of his Father in heaven and enjoying the glory of God for all eternity. That was the joy. Life in God's place forever. But to get to that finish line, Jesus had a race to run. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. The joy of heaven came through the way of the cross. Now, this verse reminds us that the cross was a shameful and humiliating way to die. Just think of it. You were stripped of your clothes, hung in front of a watching world to endure the most excruciating death imaginable. Over the course of a long, drawn-out ordeal in crucifixion, there was the pain, the aching bones, the shortness of breath, the loss of blood. And there was also the shame, the passers-by, the mockers, the family members and friends watching you die. And yet Jesus, the eternal God of heaven, came down to earth knowing he would die this death and yet scorning the shame of the cross. In other words, he had no regard for the shame of the cross. He didn't consider it worth any value compared to the joy that was set before him. Weigh up the shame of the cross versus the joy of heaven. And the joy of heaven wins every time. And so Jesus endured the cross. He hung there experiencing the pain, bearing the shame, but also bearing upon himself something even more unbearable than even those things. He took our sins with him to the cross and bore the wrath of God that was due for our sins. He took the punishment Drinking the dregs of God's wrath, the cup of God's wrath down to its dregs, so that he might share with us the joy of knowing God forever. Through the cross, Jesus, in the words of Hebrews chapter 2, brought many sons and daughters to glory. And do you see that Jesus is there now experiencing this joy? As verse 2 says, after his sufferings, he sat down. At the right hand of the throne of God. He took his place as the Lord of the universe, enjoying again the presence of God. Having finished his work, he's now enjoying his eternal rest. This is the joy that awaits every Christian believer who perseveres to the end, who keeps running, who does not shrink back. And now that we've looked at this work of Jesus, I think it helps us to understand the way that the writer describes Jesus in verse 2, the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the author of our faith in the sense that he is our forerunner or pioneer. I think they're they're helpful words to sort of capture what's going on. Or trailblazer. Sometimes we use this idea of, of trailblazing, don't we? A trailblazer is someone who sets out into the wild, blazing a new trail for people to follow. A person who hacks through the undergrowth so that people can follow in their path. Someone who marks out a new course. And once that person has completed the path, everyone else knows that they can walk behind, behind them. They can follow it too. And it's similar with Jesus. He has blazed a new way for us to walk in. He has given us a race to run because he himself has run it before us, suffering opposition and yet assured of the joy set before us. He is the author, the pioneer, the forerunner, the trailblazer of this race, race of faith. And he has perfected it now that he is sitting in his glory. So, he has given us a race to run. He has enabled us to run this race, opened up the way to God. He is our forerunner who has gone before us. And so, let us confidently run behind him. But as well as giving us a race to run, he also teaches us how to run the race. He is our model and example. Through his life of patient suffering at the hands of sinful men, he becomes the example for us to live by. Look at verse 3 with me consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Do you see that Jesus is put forward here as an example that believers can follow in their own experience of suffering? The Hebrew believers were suffering opposition at the hands of sinful men. We read about it, didn't we, in chapter 10. And in that opposition, they are to look to Jesus and consider him to consider that he, their Lord and Saviour, suffered more extreme suffering and opposition than they ever will. The Lord of life offered up to a humiliating death. Jesus teaches us how to run the race so that we might not grow weary or lose heart. Now let me just give you one example of how this might help us in the midst of opposition today. You might have heard about the rise in persecution in uh, China in recent months and years, there are thought to be around 100 million Christians in China, about 6 or 7% of the population, which, which is astonishing, isn't it? But in recent years, um, they're facing opposition, increasing opposition from the Chinese government. I read that around 5,500 churches were closed down in China last year alone. That's the same as closing down all the churches in the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches in the UK, to which we belong, and to do so eight times over, property and buildings being confiscated. We can only imagine, can't we, the exhaustion and the frustration that those thousands of pastors and members of those churches are feeling at the moment. Imagine completing our building project here only for it to be confiscated and repurposed. And for our Christian brothers and sisters in China, this passage would, would urge them to consider Jesus and the opposition that he faced. to think of the harsh words that were spoken to him, the cuts in the back, left from the whips, the bruises on his face left from the beatings, the nails in his hand, the wounds in his hands left from the nails. Think of the pain and the shame that he endured on the cross for our salvation not just physical, but enduring the wrath of God that we deserve so that we might enjoy the joy of heaven. And let that be the motivation to keep enduring whatever might come our way, knowing that the joy set before us is unspeakable and filled with glory. And so as we come to an end, let me bring um, this passage home to us by encouraging us in two ways depending on where we're at uh, with Jesus. This passage, I think, is both a spur to start the race and also a spur to keep running the race. Firstly, it's a call to start running the race if you haven't yet already. The Lord Jesus has done everything necessary for you to draw near to God through him. He has endured the cross, scorning its shame so that he might share the joy of heaven with you if you would only come to him if you would only look to Jesus and place your eternal security in his hands, repenting of the sin that took him to the cross, then you too will begin this race of your lives, a race that will end in the joy of God's presence forever and ever. Start running the race if you haven't yet. And if you have already started, if you are a convinced follower of Jesus, then let us keep looking and keep running until we make it to the end. There will come a time when we too will sit with our God in the new creation, where the sweat of the race will give way to the sweetness of heaven, where all the tragedies and trials of life will be no more as we are ushered into our eternal home. That day is coming soon. The joy that is now Jesus' joy the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith, that joy will be ours as well when we join the congregation of the faithful ones around the throne of the Lamb. So therefore, keep running. Keep looking to Jesus. The same way that you began the race is the same way you continue it, by looking to him for your strength, for your salvation, and for courage in the race. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I'm going to give you a moment to reflect on that, to consider Jesus on your own as you pray, maybe on your own.